Welcome to me being weird and echoey, everyone. Welcome this is our to, intro. To, Willow is Willow is being recorded off Zoom for this part of the for this part of the show. Uh, full disclosure: uh, batteries ran out on the recorder, so just for the intro and outro, though, you're going to be weird and echoey. Uh, this is a weird episode, isn't it? Is it an episode of our show, or is it an episode of someone else? What? <laughs> I'm re- releasing this as an episode of the show. I mean, it doesn't have a number in front of it. It's a special episode, but it's not an episode of someone else. It's not an episode of Three's Company. <laughs> it's an episode of It's Del Toro Time. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a very special Christmas episode of ALF is what we're getting. <laughs> I was trying to say something else, but that's what came out of my mouth. So. That's fine. I think that's 75% of, of the show is <laughs> I was going to say something else and then something else came out of my mouth. <laughs> so we have a really interesting episode of It's Still Toro Time this week. Yes. And it is an episode. It is. <laughs> it's it an, is episode. an episode. We just don't know what to do with ourselves because A, the Zoom keeps <laughs> cutting out and B... We have a guest. They are, do not worry. The guest is not in the room with us right now. That would suck. We're not forcing the guest to listen to all of this. Uh, so for four and a half years, Willow and I have been doing an, a show called It's Totoro Time. You, it you think? started out as a show where we covered the films of Guillermo del Toro. It went into the films that influenced Guillermo del Toro. For a while, it became a bunch short of short stories. stories. That had nothing to do with Kevin Otor. <laughs> but that we were like, we can't watch movies together. Let's just talk about short stories. Then we figured out how to watch movies together in this time of COVID. And it became about Game of Toro's influences again. It's been a trip, is what I'm saying. Yes. Ow! We've never had a guest. We've never had a guest. We've never. And part of that is because we have never been organized enough to have a guest. The other this part of it organized? Is, the other part of it is... We never wanted to bring someone into our sacred space. No. We, it's also, this, we didn't want to ruin someone's life with our, with our, weirdness. With our weirdness. Also, what would we talk about? It's the first time we're watching a movie together. Why would we bring someone into that scenario? That would be very uncomfortable. We've made jokes about people we want to have on the show. We have. They're usually the joke is Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he would gain anything from our presence. However, however, on November 9th, a book is being released called Guillermo del Toro, The Iconic Filmmaker and His Work uh, by Ian Nathan. And Ian Nathan is a, a, a writer who lives and works out of London. He is one of the UK's best known film writers. Uh, you may have read books by him, listeners. Uh, he wrote the the acclaimed Alien Vault that came out a few years ago, like this book about the history of, of, of Alien, the making of Alien. Uh, Willow is miming at me. Why are you miming at me? <laughs> That's me saying I want to get my hands on that book. Oh, oh, I thought you were I thought you were miming that I'm talking too much. <laughs> and I'm like, I am introducing our guest. No. <laughs> like I'm I mean, like Ian Nathan is, and you're like yam 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 yam. This guy. This is not. This is not the time when I would tell you to stop talking. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm trying to let people know who this man is if they do not know. They probably know who this man is. He is. He is very well known. He's a very well known writer. Um. Also, is that your way of saying you want Alien Vault for Christmas? Uh, I didn't put it on my list. He wrote Alien Vault. <laughs> Uh, it's a piece of work. Um, he like also in a good way or a bad way. Like in a good way, no, in a bad way. <laughs> I'm I'm insulting his book before we bring him in. It's an incredible work. He did a uh, he did uh, the best selling history of Ridley Scott's uh, Terminator. He did the book Terminator Vault. Uh, he's written books on Quentin Tarantino, on Tim Burton, on the Coen Brothers. He wrote anything you can imagine: Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth. Uh, he's the former editor and executive editor of Empire Magazine, uh, where he is still a contributing editor. Uh, he regularly contributes to the Times, the Independent, the Mail on Sunday, uh, Discover, and the Discovering Film documentary series on Sky Arts. Uh, we are interviewing Ian Nathan, the author of of all of this. Are you excited? I am excited. I'm so excited. I'm going to do so much talking. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, we uh, we we pre-recorded the the interview before 
before we before we recorded this part. That's why Willow's recorder is out of batteries and we were recording off Zoom. That is yes. Uh, that's why we're recording off Zoom right now. Willow's recorder ran out of batteries, so uh, Willow is now cycling through. I don't know why you're doing this. Willow is cycling through Zoom filters uh, and creating a, a nuisance of herself as I am trying to get us into. The Ian, I have nothing to say, the Ian so Nathan I'm letting you speak. Letting me speak. <laughs> As if I could stop you from speaking. You stop. I was trying to do a nice introduction of, our, of the very nice man who agreed to be He's on He's great. He's wonderful. Very. It's, so what you're about to hear is the interview we did with Ian Nathan earlier today. He is I, everything you could want in a podcast guest. As mm-hmm. long as you're discussing, I guess, films or Guillermo del Toro. Because, I mean, if you were discussing, like, carburetors, I don't know if he'd be the best guest. But that's for the our other show, the Carburetor Cast. So our our father-daughter podcast all about carburetors, I guess. I don't, I don't know. even know what that is. The carburetor. It is a, obviously, it's a part of a car. It starts with the word car. Carburetor. He has a very lovely cat. He has a very lovely cat, who you will not get to see because this is an audio format. But trust us. Ian Nathan has a very lovely cat. I apologize right now to Ian Nathan for this rambling introduction. Uh, But we are going to do this correctly. I am Phil. And I'm Willow. And it's it's Del Toro Toro time. time. So we're very excited because we've been doing this show for four and a half years and you're our first guest. Okay. That's (laughs) pressure on. Um, yeah, that's exactly what we were talking about is how much we expect of you <laughs> how do i live up to it see what you just guys then just discuss the film you, you've just seen and mm-hmm. go over it and your response mm-hmm. to it and right you, you and then sort of bring it back to guillermo and his work yes when we remember that that's the premise <laughs> of our show there have been episodes where we've said oh and uh wait Guillermo del toro right because we've gotten yeah, yeah. so into the movie itself but uh, I mean, in a way, I mean, I don't. I guess I don't have to tell you this, but he kind of he wears his influences proudly on his sleeve. He very much, very much does. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, for an author, it's it's wonderful because you know I've written books about the Cohen brothers in the past, and mm-hmm. the Cohen brothers don't tell you anything. They just like ah, whatever, you know. They just like <laughs> you know, it's just films. Whereas Guillermo sort of just it pours out of him all this stuff, and you just sort of lap it up, and you sort of gather it in, and go right. Well, there's so many influences. In fact, just corralling it into a book is hard because mm-hmm. every one film he's made has about 50 influences on it in different ways mm-hmm. not least his own childhood and, you know, right. growing up with his own ghosts in, in mexico so yeah he is fantastic in that sense he's like a living biography you know he just sort of tells you his story yeah we were uh we were talking uh beforehand about the fact that uh, there's like there's artists who just love to talk about their work yeah i think he's He's very conscious of his place as a filmmaker and also conscious of the fact that film is a tradition and it's a tradition he sort of grew up in and, and got educated in. You know, he went to university and studied film. So he has that that kind of backing to, to who he is as, as an artist. But also a sense, you know, he's one of the, the most generous of, of directors in terms of his relationship with his fans mm-hmm. and the outside world. He, he wants to share. He's gregarious. Yeah. He's greedy for everything. He always talks about it. He's greedy for films. He's greedy for food. And he's greedy for company and having people around him. And, you know, he's greedy for his, his films to be sort of not just watched, but sort of felt and appreciated in the same way that you know, he's gone about making them. Now, in your book, uh, so we both read the book. And mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat, it is... I mean, I, I guess I don't have to tell you, but it's a top-notch piece of work. Thank you. Um, very kind. You do have to tell me. You never I, know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there have been books written about Guillermo del Toro before that have gone through his his works. Um, when you were approaching this, uh, one thing that I really appreciated about this and that we were talking about off off mic was that it sort of finds this balance between biography and filmography that never leans one way or the other. It you know you have to be familiar with his work in order to yeah. to get this book to understand this book. It's not you don't hold anyone's hand through like here's what Kronos is about, here's what Mimic is about. Uh, how did you come to strike that balance between between telling the story of his life and telling about his films? 
the book is part of a series of, of sort of monographs, if you want the posh term uh, you know, mm. for them, is sort of covering directors. So there was, thankfully, a format that had been established. There's a book on Quentin Tarantino and mm-hmm. the Coen brothers and Tim Burton we've done in the past. And so I could follow that in terms of the structure. Um, now it's, it's, it's really is a, re- a challenge to say, where do you draw the line? What, right. what do you consider? Who, do you, who is your reader and, and where are they coming from? And one of the things I appreciate, no one's going to buy a book about any filmmaker unless on some level they had a passion for that filmmaker. It's, you know, it's just sort of a given. And therefore you think, well, if they've already got a passion for that filmmaker, they're going to be quite knowledgeable yeah. on the films. Um, they may not have seen them all. They may not be uh, you know, an avid. They may be a sort of casual fan or they may be an absolute died-in-the-wall follower. Mm. So you kind of have to, to sort of take some elements for granted and some you have to kind of pull back and go, well, do I have to explain myself and explain where this context lies? I, I worked for a, a film magazine for a long time, for 20 years, called Empire, published out of the UK, mm-hmm. a successful film magazine. And we, have, we used to have a lot of discussion about what does the reader already know? It was kind of a policy. It's like you didn't have to go, Star Wars, open brackets, 1977, directed by George Lucas. Yeah, you, you just assumed people knew what Star Wars was. You assumed you could put the word Kubrick down without Stanley in front of it, and people would know that right. it meant Stanley Kubrick. So it was such a strong concept. Spielberg. Everybody knows who Spielberg is. But if you come back, if, you know, if you got to rarer things, if you talked about... I don't know if you've done it yet in your list of films, The Spirit of the Beehive. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, enormous influence on Pants Labyrinth, as, as you guys know. I think that's the kind of thing I, th- I felt I had to build up a bit more. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't assume everyone had seen that. It's quite an unusual Spanish film, very beautiful film. But I, And I wanted people to see it as well. I, I wanted people to sort of take read the book and then go, well, I think I need to see Spirit yeah. of the Beehive, then maybe come back to Pants Labyrinth. The bottom line, really, for me, and... It's been true of everything I've done. Is you want to pe- bring people back to to the films and mm. to, to the enjoyment of the films. And if I can help enlarge people's enjoyment of, of those films, or, or maybe sort of swerve them around things that don't, you know, I don't think are going to agree with them, then I've done my job. And yeah. I think, you know, as, I, as me as a reader, I like to appreciate, you know, the, the subject I'm, I'm watching from knowledge of it, you know, yeah. that's what I do for a living. Yeah. But I like knowing, I like knowing stuff and I like the, the, the levels films can operate on. Yeah, I love the Coen brothers because you can watch a film once and think you've got it figured out, then go right. back to it again and it's a completely different film. And it's you know, that's that level upon level, that kind of onion peeling I, I love. And there's a bit of that in Guillermo as well. Mm. You know, he, he, it's more personal with him, I think, in the sense of you go looking for him second and third time round. You sort of go from the more oh, this relates to the childhood or this relates to Spain's relationship with Mexico. Right, right. And his love of fairy tales, all that, whatever it might be. But I want to bring people back to to the films. In a way, I'm I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm I'm sending them away from the book to the screen. Right. That's that's your job as 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 a writer about film. No, uh, I mean, just having gone through his work and then, oh, Willow, I'm sorry. No, sorry. There was there's a gnat. Oh, I thought you were raising your hand. No, I'm not in class. If I wanted to say something, I would just speak. I was like, "Well, this is unusual. I've never experienced this before." Um, what's I thought you doing Barton Fink, you know, with the fly and Barton right. Fink, no, no, the by, yeah, yeah. It's it's all about the sound. Um, the sound. Uh, but I did want to ask you in the beginning of your book, you said that uh, I I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but yeah. uh, you said that his his. Being Mexican is his superpower. I think what I was trying to get at is that the one thing that I think is true of everything he's made, no matter mm. what it is, you know, from Pan's Labyrinth, from Kronos, which is the only film he's ever made in Mexico, right yeah. through to Pacific Rim, you know, a huge blockbusting kind of film, they all have a Mexican quality to them. They have him in them. You know, it's what makes him an auteur rather than just a, a journeyman filmmaker. And that's all about mixing things around you know mixing genres you know mm. what I, I love about the editorial is you think you know which genre you're watching but yet you're never 100 percent sure you know it's right. like a ghost film but it's actually a war film it's a fairy tale but it's a coming of age story it's a film about brothers and fathers but it's also a film about giant robots fighting giant monsters yeah he's great at throwing a huge amount into the pot and i love this analogy with mexican food you know it's full of spices it's full of different things so that yeah. idea of the cornucopia 
of styles, I think comes from his background and, and, and that kind of Mexican spirit. And also, you know, what are you saying at the beginning, this idea of you know, sharing and, and influence is very Mexican thing. And the openness with which he discusses it is, yeah, I'm Mexican. This is what we do. We gather around the table in, in vast families and we talk it all through. You know, whereas more American filmmakers just don't think like that. And it's passion as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I mean, he's obviously incredibly passionate, not only about his craft, but about the subjects and mm. the world around it, about reading and about culture. He's hugely passionate. And he's passionate about food and he's passionate about family. And all that comes through in his films. You watch a film like Mimic or you watch a film like Blade 2, which were kind of studio you know, created stories and you've got a sort of tow a party line. The problem with Mimic is that you couldn't tow the party line. Right. But with, same with Blade 2. What I love about Blade 2 is it's kind of clearly a franchise movie, yet it's still frothing with, with that Mexican spirit, you know, yeah. the, the way he shoots it, the, the idea of the characters. Um, and it comes alive. Again, it's the great tragedy of the father and the son. Yeah. And it's all, you know, he invests everything he does with that, with that kind of passion. You mentioned in the book uh, that Blade Two uh, and Hellboy was it Hellboy? Yeah, Hellboy Two and Blade Two share this common DNA: the story of like the father and the son, and like the the older the ruler wanting to leave his yeah. his kingdom to uh, to year. Uh, and we talked about in our in our episodes on those the fact that it almost seemed like Del Toro was more interested in telling that story necessarily than telling the story of Blade or the story of Hellboy. Uh, I think he, he is more interested in the tragedy, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the kind of the lone princeling character. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's sort of an archetype of fairy tales. Um, and it, you can argue sort of Pan's Labyrinth, she's a, a lost daughter, you know, right. who's lost the king she's trying to return to. So it's a little bit, I mean, less sort of emphasized, but it's there in, in that film. And I think he, he likes that idea. I think there's an element of him, him personally. You know, he, mm -hmm. He's sort of exiled from Mexico. I mean, he does yeah. go home, but he lives in LA and he now makes his films in Los Angeles. And I think he feels he's an exile in, in some ways and it's sort of invested in, in what he does and the kind of spirit he has. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you're right. I think those two films, he likes blade you know, and and to send hellboy and hellboy 2 is already established right and we've sort of been through the journey of hellboy 1 i mean there are factors you know he's mm -hmm. becoming a father he's trying to straighten his act up in, in hellboy 2 but he's he's established and blade 2 yeah as it says in the book yeah he kind of left blade 2 up to wesley snipes That's you know, true, you know, i'll yeah. shoot you you know, i'll keep you you do the cool stuff you know I, i'm interested in the vampires and and what's going on the monster stuff and he's interested in, in tragedy i, I think like all great sort of film, you know, storytellers, you know, tragedy and, and doom and disaster are much more interesting than superpowers. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the problems with Marvel is that in the end, it's indestructible people fighting each other. You get mm. to a point where it's just indestructible people fighting each other. And you're just like, well, where, where can this go dramatically? Right. Other than the good guys who are eventually going to win after a lot of CGI happens. <laughs> yeah, and people, people dig it and that's fine. But I think with Del Toro, that you know, he wants the, the tragedy and, and in a funny way, the human condition to, to be emphasized. And mm. you can find the human in his films much more in the monsters than the humans quite often. I think that's where he yeah. invests a lot of his inquiry into the, the idea of the, you know, of the human being. He, he puts them into the monsters because their flaws are written on the outside. And right. even Hellboy has his flaws on the outside and his, you know, his frustrations. So... I think that's where it comes from. And I, I think uh, all fairy tales have that in them, that they are, uh, in, in a sense, you know, about lost lost children coming home or not coming home, as, yeah. as it may be. But you're exactly right. I think this motif is very common in his films. Yeah, he, he relies a lot on fairy tale. And fairy tale in the, you know, the original sense of the word, like fairies, the dangers of the fairy world, the the. the, yeah. the the promises it holds and also the threat of that promise like you are you are always dealing in 
in a world that humans do not belong in. But hopefully there's a reconciliation between the two, uh, you know, in, in the best of all possible endings. He covered, it, there's three movies that we covered that you mentioned in sort of a, one of the sort of like later appendix areas of the yes. book. Uh, uh, Mama, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and The Orphanage that yes. we considered kind of a loose trilogy of, of his produced films that sort of put forward fairy tale ideas and his ex- exploration of the fairy world that uh, that he just didn't, you know, the other filmmakers, yes. he sort of let run with that concept. Um, is there a reason that you put his produced works on a, on a different level than his than his directorial efforts <laughs> well one of the reasons is very pragmatic you've got a certain word count <laughs> to, to work within yep and you kind of have to make choices about which things are going to run with and which things are going to get less coverage you know once you start you realize you could do two hundred thousand words yeah. you know a grand biography on him and, and not even finish there because there's so much so many layers to him so you have to be quite disciplined as you set out and the title of the book is The Filmmaker and His, you know, the iconic filmmaker and his work. Yeah. And for me, that primarily is the work he directed because that's the work he's the author of in, in the most distinct ways. But I wanted to get the, the produced by stuff in there as much as I could. I, I, yeah, I think it's very important. And I think he, he's, again, it's one of the ways he gives back. Mm-hmm. To, to, you know, he gets his other work going you know, on, on TV and, and film. And the, the themes and, and the fairy tales, you were saying, do recur. In them. I mean, I, I saw Antlers uh, recently, which oh, is wow, also yeah. produced by which it's got a similar vibe. It's not as successful, maybe, as, as those films, but it's it's a lost child, you know, and it's, it's a monster who has a relationship with the child, which is quite personal. And it's, and it's this idea of the child is almost the conduit for the monster, which, which sort of comes up in, in those films. There's the kind of creepy houses that are very fairy tale. The backdrop is Oregon. But it's mountains and it's mist and it's woods. So it's got a very Grim Brothers kind yeah. of atmosphere to it. And obviously it's directed by Scott Cooper, right. who would go about things differently to Del Toro. But you can feel his hand on, on the tiller, yeah. as it were. And I think you're right. I, I think there is there is connective tissue between Mama and the orphanage uh, and don't be afraid of the dark and, and the films that he does. So I've got a cat about to invade here. Keep it out of the and I think it's true. It, it, he he does have a, a, a theme to his work beyond just. Sorry, this is now a cat. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Uh, it's because I'm talking and the cat's drawn right, to me course. talking. <laughs> um, he does have something, and I, what I do find fascinating, he almost can't escape himself, no matter what he does. Yeah. He, you know, he's so his storytelling sense and his personality is so strong that I can't imagine him going away and producing, you know, uh, a marital drama without it becoming a fairy tale. Without or, it becoming yeah, possession. How... Yes. <laughs> Something in the house. I, I, I was yeah. going to say, I think that literally happened in 1981. This is true. <laughs> and he says it himself. He, he, you know, would you ever make a, you know, it's what the lazy question interviewers always end up with, with him, you know, would you ever make a straight drama and something without any supernatural? And he goes, I wouldn't know how. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't know where to start, you know. Because he he knows this is his this is his subject. Yeah, people used to ask that of Stephen King a lot. They were like, "Could you just write a straightforward book?" Especially back in his heyday, and he was like, "I don't I don't understand the question." Like I, to, I think yeah. to him he was writing straightforward books. Yeah, it's cliche, I guess, to say that Guillermo del Toro is like as known for the movies he didn't make as he is for the movies that ended up on the silver screen. But it, it, it's true that, like, and you point this out a, a lot, that the, the, the amount of work he puts into pre-production uh, than to have a movie not just be canceled out from under him uh, was, was shattering for him for a while. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and really just deeply affected him as a filmmaker because he put so much of his time and, and effort into that. Uh, 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 which of these movies, the, the the famous list of unproduced Guillermo del Toro, would would you personally have liked to have seen to fruition? The answer most people would give is At the Mountains of Madness, the great Lovecraft 
that that was his passion passion project right. you know? and the work that had gone into that was immense and i have a sneaking suspicion he might lean on netflix yeah to, 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 to maybe come back to that because there's a whole load of work done and you know he had tom cruise ready yeah. to do it and he had james cameron as his producer yeah. all the special effects and still they said no the the universal uh, i think they panicked it was too dark i think it was going to be a very adult gory sort and then of, of course prometheus yeah. came out <laughs> Then Premies came out and they said, well, you know, what, what kind of films do, you know, do people want? <laughs> um, for me, it's the Count of Monte Cristo film, mm. The Left Hand of Darkness. That's the one I, I would truly like to see. Um, I've read that screen, screenplay. You can find it online. I don't know if you guys um, have read it yet. It's well worth tracking down online and just reading. It's a lovely piece. It's a great story. It's very true to, to the book, mm-hmm. but it has its del Toro-ness, you know, the fathers and sons. It has a sort of steampunk vibe with the Western. Yeah. And the supernatural is, is, is more to the edge of it, but it, it's definitely there. It has great shock and drama and, and death in it and, and this wonderful sense of spectacle. And it was yeah. Mexican. You know, he had taken the book from France to Mexico mm. and made a very Mexican story out of it. So I really would have loved to have seen, you know, the, I'm still loving it. You know, maybe fingers crossed it might yeah. come back again. You never know. That's the one uh, I, I would love to see. Do you think they would call it left hand of darkness because of the, like to avoid confusion with the novel? Like I was very curious about that. Yeah. Like, I, he just took the title. There is a, um, a theme in it about a, a sort of gunfighting contraption that one of the characters has. Yeah. Know, that he uses, which is kind of the left hand thing. Um, but I think he just liked the play on words. Yeah. Let's see the um, the Gwyn story, isn't it? The, right. uh, sort of the Gwyn science fiction film. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, I, <laughs> right. There might be copyright reasons. There, there might be very good reasons why you you, you cannot. But uh, you know, it's a nice story, or and a nice title to go with that story. Yeah. So. Uh, we'd, we'd see. But um, for, it's been a long time now since he's talked about that, so I don't know. For me, it was always Nightmare Alley when he was just sort of talking about Nightmare Alley. I was like, oh, this would be amazing. But yeah. what are the chances of that ever happening? And <laughs> then like, he just sort of like made Nightmare Alley. And we are our plan is to we're going to be covering the novel and then we're yeah. going to cover the original uh, version, the original film, uh, which I did a short episode on years ago. And yeah. uh, then we're going to, you know, try to watch his movie. But you've seen Nightmare Alley. No. Oh, you no, haven't? I, I've not, okay. I've not seen it yet. No. Um, I, I've read the book like, mm-hmm. that you guys have. Um, as far as I know, it's not finished quite yet. Oh, okay. You Venice spoke so person- confidently of it in this book that I was... <laughs> That's a little bit of the kind of the uh, the smoke and mirrors game okay. you have to play with. The, with the last chapter is always the film that's sort of in production. Yeah, I did Wes Anderson book uh, previous year, and the French Dispatch was still being made. So you have to sort of get what you can. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, from Guillermo del Toro, he was at least adapting a book and a film that had already been made. So yeah. I had a starting point. And but that the most amount of detective work you you, you hit is with the films that are still in production because mm. he's buried in those films and isn't yet ready to come out yeah and, mm-hmm. um so no i've not yet seen okay. nightmare alley like you I, I i'm fascinated by it i love the concept of it's a film noir so sensibly it's not like his other films but then you read the book it's and then you realize it's a story about the tarot yeah. and it's about luck and destiny and cons played and just again just at the edge of it there's that lovely idea of something supernatural going on. Right. A kind of influence on it. And I wonder whether he's going to lean into that more than the book does. This kind of sort of spirituality. Um, right. Because you know. it's definitely like a, a much more human, just like this is the the follies of humankind uh, story than I've seen him dive into and i i think this might answer that question for people of yeah. what would it be like if Guillermo del toro made a straight drama film like c- will it stay that way or will he or, or will he just unavoidably turn it into something even even if it's even if there is no supernatural i can't imagine it at least visually yeah. not being impressionistic enough yeah have you seen freaks the todd mm-hmm. brown oh, yeah. film yeah. yeah i think freaks is a very big influence on it because the whole carny element yeah. and i think he's gonna That's exciting so the, the the book plays up 
a certain amount of you know, weird acts in, in, the, in mm-hmm. the carnival show. But I think he's going to really emphasize the freak nature of the, you know, the, the, the guys on the, in the show right. and then the kind of traveling acts. That will give a sense of monster and tragedy to it. Yeah. That is very Del Toro. So I think that will very much, that freak side of it will be very, because he loves that film. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you know. Oh, he, yeah. he, so I think that will bring up the Del Toro-ness. And also I think, as I was saying, this idea of the tarot and the reading. And his mother was a tarot reader. And, you know, that was part of the family that yeah. his mother believed that you could read the cards and predict the future. And, you know, his father was much more prag- pragmatic, practical man. So I think this is almost like his tribute to his mother, this film. Oh, and, and the reading of the, the, the tarots. And I think there'll be visual elements to it that you know, the book's divided into chapters. Each one is, is, is a card of the tarot. Mm-hmm. And I think there'll be an elements of the film that sort of draw us back to, to that idea of destiny yeah and and cons you know and it's a con man story uh, are all about trying to control destiny to to fool nature that, right and he's a he's a con man priest he's fooling people that he's in touch with with god and i, I love the idea that that's kind of what filmmakers are you know they, they yeah. con us into believing something and the the better the con the better the film yeah. so i think del toro believes he's in elements he, he's a bit of a con man he creates these these kind of um, twists on reality and fools us into believing in them when we believe implicitly you know he's got us yeah what, what's amazing about him as a con man though is he is the he's the con man who says i'm going to con you and then at the end of your 15 minutes with him you're writing out a check for 500 dollars. like he's yeah. he's so he's not hiding the fact that he's that he's pulling the wool over your eyes and he does it so well that you just willingly give yourself over to it as opposed to like, you know, like a, a stage musician who's trying to convince you that it's all real. Yes. But he does have that, that quality in his films. You say that you know, people going into labyrinths, they often start in the here and now, or they start in a very conspicuous reality mm. that pans labyrinth. It, it, it's a tangible Spain. You know, she's driving in the car. And, only slightly, you know, and he starts to feed in the unreality. And in Pan's Labyrinth, you know, it, it's so delicately done that it could be read as her delusion, the child, you know, in this time of trauma, that, in fact, all this stuff isn't happening. I mean, Del Toro says it is. And one of the things is the end, you know, they're in the, the maze and she jumps forward in the maze to a point physically where the guy couldn't keep up with her. There are little tricks in it that tells you it is magic. Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that actually it's about descents into magical worlds from reality. So he sets you up in a place where you're used to and you can believe in. And then he starts to feed in the oddity and yeah. he sort of comes to life. Now, Ian, this so your book, to, to bring it back around to the whole the the, the reason you're initially here, uh, did you have any contact with Del Toro during the writing of this? Or was this based on uh, previous interviews? that you'd done with him, uh, how did that work out? It's it's, it's a good question. Um, I didn't, during the making of this book, I have interviewed him before mm-hmm. on, on a couple of occasions, and I, I have had sort of contact with him outside of that through through Empire Magazine I used to work on. One of the nature of the, the books as a series is they are takes on a filmmaker rather than biographies. Yeah. There's a lot of biography involved in them, and I like drawing from the film back to the person. I think that's what makes it... An, in, an interesting art, you know, yeah. art form, and so that that was so. In that sense, you do get a life story alongside the films, mm-hmm. but primarily the idea is that it's, it's what the original meaning of monograph is, is. It's it's my critique of a set of films by a yeah. filmmaker, and that's the the under underlying principle. And there is it, and there are practical elements to it. Not least his, you know, he was shooting two films. So yeah. his availability was was very thin during a pandemic, you know, which makes everything right. very difficult. Um, also, you know, to, uh, without sort of trying to cloud it with complication, as soon as you involve someone on a, on a kind of official level, the nature of the book changes, okay. and the requirements of publishing change. And I've done books along those lines. I did a book on Lord of the Rings, the making of um, anything you can imagine, all about making that. And Peter Jackson was very very involved. And I spent a lot of time with him doing that. And although he didn't have clearance on it, there's a different texture in how you go about it. Yeah. Um, it's not that you're, you're, you know, it's not like you're doing anything untoward. Or, you know, and I think Guillermo will be very happy with the book because you know, he comes out of it very well. 
and it looks very lovely and he's a great appreciator of of things um you know just the fabric of books i think he loves um but it's yeah the, the nature of of what this set of books is is that it's analyses of a filmmaker rather than necessarily yeah me going around for lunch, you know, and, yeah. and having sort of a lot of time with him. And um, not that I ever say no to that, but it, right, it, it, <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, Willow, you've been very quiet. Uh, do you have uh, Do you have anything? To Sorry, ask? I've, so I've the cat been... is mesmerizing you. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a cat, which is automatically going to take a lot of my attention. Also, I've just been <laughs> interested in listening to the conversation. I'm more of a listener than a talker, as most of the listeners of the show know. <laughs> Okay, can, can I ask a couple of questions of you guys? Because you've sure. been watching the yeah. films. Okay, one is, um, had you seen any films before you watched them again? And did they change the second or third time mm. you went back to them? And were, the second is, you know, were there films that got better you know, than your first time you saw it? It was okay. But the second time you sort of, because you were sort of embracing the world and the person much more, did they sort of leap out yeah. either the first or second times because of your... The fact you'd read about him and were, you know, were doing the podcast. So I'd seen Pan's Labyrinth. Um, okay. And that was, I think, the only movie that I had seen of his. I definitely noticed more. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say it got better because it was already pretty amazing. Yeah. When I first saw it, I was way too young, <laughs> as with <laughs> all of the movies I've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I saw it with one of my friends and she made me close my eyes during some parts of it because she didn't want me to watch certain parts of it. <laughs> it's the, it's the cheek, the cheek slitting the is pretty horrendous. Scene, yeah. The yeah. guns. She, yeah, the, yeah. She, she was like, no, you're going to stop watching now. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so watching that was definitely harrowing. But I think that um, out of the movies that, well, I cried a lot during Crimson Peak. Yeah. I think that was, yeah. we had to yeah, re-record yeah. that episode because I was sobbing <laughs> the entire time we were recording it. <laughs> that was an interesting episode because that's where we came up with our our rule of if a movie is is too much for you you are allowed to stop watching a movie like no one is required to watch a movie and uh and that was a little that was an intense film that that was a little much for yeah. for willow mm-hmm. at the time no, i think that's very fair yeah but i also think it's like as you get older one of the things that's, that you start to, to grasp about films is sometimes they throw things at you that are intense and off-putting mm-hmm. to sort of get you to a place to move you somewhere. right you know, yeah. It's like entertainment and pleasure is a large amount of what we get out mm. of films, but mm. they're not necessarily everything we get out, out yeah. of films. And there are certain things that be appalled isn't necessarily the wrong emotional reaction, especially to, to fascists at their, at their mm. worst. I think right. Del Toro would want you to come away going, that was horrendous and horrific because that's yeah. what he's showing you and the way the world is. A recurring theme on our show is I'll complain about a movie the entire time we're talking about it and then I'll recommend it at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Kronos... When it came out, wow. I, wow. I was in yeah. I was in college, and the Houston Chronicle was just like, "There's this movie called Chronos, and I think you should go see it." So I was like, "Okay," and I went with a friend of mine, uh, and she's you know she was just like, "What is this?" And I'm like, "I have no idea," uh, <laughs> but we couldn't stop thinking about this movie. It was it was just so unusual, and I had never seen a movie told in that visual style i didn't understand like is this supposed to be funny is it supposed to be scary is it am i supposed to be weirded out by this i had i didn't the the language of the film just confused me but i couldn't stop thinking about it and then i watched it a few years later and i was like after i knew who guillermo del toro was and i was like okay (laughs) and then we watched it for this four and a half years ago now and i was like I think I'm beginning to understand what's going on here. And now I think yeah. I'm ready to watch it again. And and now that I've seen like not only his other films and his influences, but like now that I understand like what he thinks a vampire is, I yeah. think it's yeah. going into that. But also obviously like as an uninformed, uneducated film viewer, when I was guys like 20 years old when I saw it, uh, I obviously got a lot out of it. Like there's something yeah. about going in uninformed and just being shocked by what you're seeing. Well, absolutely. And most filmmakers would, would want that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't want you to have done your homework beforehand. Right. <laughs> they, they, they kind of, it's quite a modern thing. You know, again, coming back to the Marvel films, 
it's quite unusual in the sense that they want you to know things beforehand. So mm-hmm. come in equipped with the knowledge of the other films and, and that whole kind of world. Whereas, you know, traditionally filmmaking is, you know, Pauline Kael, the great film critic, used to say, you should be able to turn up at a cinema, see the poster yeah. and choose your film. That's the point. You should know nothing. Yeah. And they should, you know, go in and the film should give you everything you need, you know, from the moment it starts to the moment it finishes. There should be no, oh, I don't understand because I hadn't done any reading beforehand and, right. and, and all of that. Yeah. But I, what you were saying about um, just the experience and the way the experience haunts you is very true to my, to my life and, and my career. Because I saw Blade Runner at the cinema when mm. I was probably about 12. Yeah. And yeah, I'd, I'd grown up and I'd watched Star Wars and, and sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark and all the, the kind of, you know, I wanted to see the next film with Harrison Ford. And I told my mum she had to take me and all those kind of things went on. And I was very troubled by it. I didn't understand it at age 12. It was, it was very dark and it was no happy ending. And I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew it was beautiful. And I knew for the first time I realised there was a director at work in the sense that someone was choosing shots, was making it look like this deliberately. Someone had a sense of control over the whole world of the film. And I was haunted by it greatly. Now, I've watched it countless times since, and I've written about it and many things. I've met Ridley Scott and all all those kind of elements, and it's almost stayed with me. But that first time Mm -hmm. of watching it is at the the heart of why I I like to write about films, because if they're good, there are things in them, they, they stay in your brain and they sort of yeah. itch away. They're at the back of your head. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. What did that mean? Did that really happen? You know, was he human? Was he not human? All those kind of things. <laughs> to me, that's that's the essence of like wanting to know more about films, which is the first time you see a film where you go, I don't know what happened, but I know everything happened on purpose. Yes. Like, I yeah. know this was all deliberate. I need to know more. <laughs> yeah. Um, my experience with that was with Rosemary's Baby. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I saw that when I was also far too young. <laughs> um, and I was absolutely dreading watching it again for the show. Because uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the vocabulary when I was younger to express how I felt about the movie. I just knew that it was upsetting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I went so many years thinking I didn't like the movie because of how upset I got when I watched it. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh, no, this is just an upsetting movie, but it's a good yes, movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're meant to be upset. Yeah. yeah. That's the desired effect. Sure. Yeah. If, there is a chi- a, yeah. a ch- if there's a child with the vocabulary to describe why they're upset by Rosemary's Baby, I don't <laughs> want to know that child's vocabulary. Well, if, if there is a child who is, they're probably the, you know, the, you know, the character in a Del Toro film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the children are adults and all the adults are children you know it's kind of inverted kind yeah. of, uh, landscape so that's very true you shouldn't really understand but rosary's baby's another one where the supernatural is kept right up at the back of the story really until mm-hmm. the very end yeah. you're not quite sure if there is something real going on or she it's just in her head yeah. And I love that until the last bit where she's rocking the pram, which is very disturbing. Yeah. Where she kind father's of, eyes. She kind of takes control of the situation too, which is something that I hadn't remembered, where Rosemary suddenly realizes Okay. Oh, I have the upper hand here because I'm the mother of this child. And she tells everyone to shut yeah. up and she just holds the baby and she's like now what are you going to do? Uh, that was yeah. something that even as after I had seen it as an adult before, I was like, oh, I didn't realize this is a movie about so much about power. And mm-hmm. yeah. Del Toro always loving to play with the notion of who has the power in a situation. And it's frequently yeah. not the children until they do. And there's yeah. that like that Lord of the Flies-esque uh, like kids are powerless until they're not powerless anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, well, uh, it was the devil's backbone is, is yeah, absolutely. I mean, they even sharpen the, the, the spears mm-hmm. like they do in the Lord of the Flies. You know, that is the point where they have to turn the tables. An element I and, always forget is in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cria Huervos, uh, the movie we watched. Oh, yes. Is, that's really heavy handed in that. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> You've really gone on a journey, you guys, haven't yeah. you? Like... Yeah. We started with Haxon. Yep. Oh, wow. That is, yeah, I've, I've seen Haxon many years ago. It's quite, it's quite 
I, it's kind of an academic exercise when you watch films that are that old. You know, it's very hard mm -hmm. to sort of get into them rather than you, you can. But I was amazed at them, what were special effects, like, yes. the way they did. They were all the kind of super positions and clearly were people kind of coming between other people's legs and sort of crawling out. And... Haxon, I, I told the story. That Haxon is the yeah. first movie that I ever experienced. I rented it when I was in like, I don't remember, college or high school. And it was my father came into my bedroom holding the VHS tape going, is there something you need to tell me? Like that was the first time that it ever happened to me as a kid. I was like, that's a silent film about witchcraft. I don't, he was like, are you getting into, is there something I need to know? And yeah, it was with like a, 19, a 1920s silent film was, was my experience with that. Let me ask you, what, what are your favorites? What are, the, your, what are your, your Del Toro favorites? And you don't have to have an absolute favorite, but what are the ones, you know, what, what is your kind of obvious favorite and maybe unusual? favorite out of all the films one of my my close colleagues you know said to me when you what you should do before you set out to write the book is write your top your list your top five del mm -hmm. toros write it before you write the book then write it again after you've written the book yeah. and see what's changed and that the order has changed and i, I kind of like my my one and two always kind of vacillate between devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth they kind mm. of go up and down depending on the mood i'm in um uh, the one that kind of came up a lot was the first Hellboy. I think I'd written it off as, when I first saw it, as a bit of a superhero thing, and it was all jokes. And and I thought it was quite a compassionate film when I sort of went back to it, the father-son relationships that go on within it. And I yeah. loved, during my coverage of the various stages of Lord of the Rings and, and, and Peter Jackson stuff, I saw some of the Del Toro artwork mm -hmm. for The Hobbit. And I think it looked a bit like Hellboy. Not wow. directly, but if you imagine that kind of like the, the clockwork dungeons they go to yeah. and, and all that stuff at the end of Hellboy, that I think is, is a is sort of an insight into what Del Toro's Hobbit might have looked like. It's interesting because I gained a deeper appreciation of Hellboy once I figured out in my head why the character of, I can't even think of his name, the young guy who was in from the comics that they... The, the, the kind of, he's kind of the, the eyes of the audience, isn't he? Right. Mm -hmm. But I think yeah, we... Yeah, to go, why is it? Yeah. We put together in our episode, we're like, oh, he's the he's the virgin knight who has to come in and, and, and save, like, he's sort of positioned as that element of a fairy tale. Like, you have mm -hmm. to have yeah. the, the innocent, the, 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 the guy who's just sort of thrown into the adventure. Once we repositioned him there, I was like, oh, no, he is important to the story. Guillermo del Toro wouldn't add an extraneous character. Yeah. That guy serves a function. Um, I would say between the, the Devil's Backbone was the movie that really made me go, oh, I think I'm getting what this guy's about uh so and i and i return to devil's backbone because i i find it strangely a comforting film um because it's very gentle in a lot of its approach until it isn't um yeah. <laughs> but also pacific rim for me i feel right. like is this greatly misunderstood film about a person returning to their art after a long time away and and it's about it's a so it's so much the story of someone struggling with not only can I still do this, but am I worthy of this? Is am yeah, I yeah. do I have a place here anymore? And I find that a deeply personal like message, especially as you grow older, as you're as you're like, why am I even? Where is my place? Like, what am I doing here? There's something about Pacific Rim that answers that question yeah. that, re yeah, that yeah. resounds with that I find very, again, strangely comforting as a as a father and as an artist myself yeah. and as someone who creates. Uh, to have to have had Gamble del Toro go, it's okay. It's okay to not know what you're doing. It's okay to yeah. to feel a little at sea you can return and your community is there and there are people yeah. there. You may not know who your community is yet, but there are people there who will support you and who you can support. Like to me, Pacific Rim is a story about finding all of that again. And I find it very moving in that regard. Yeah. So I like Pacific Rim. That was a very beautiful answer. I like Mimic. Because I like because I like the monster design. I'm all about the monster design. It's my favorite part of the movies. Um, so <laughs> I like mimic. I also I don't love the strain. Oh, but the monster design in it is yeah probably. I think that 
the specific vampire designs or the Strigoi designs have stuck with me and mm. they've yeah. they've uh I've I'm I'm a writer. I would do a lot of writing. <laughs> um yeah. so I've definitely had some of my short stories informed by the sort of process of the strange vampirism and things yeah. like that. Um uh, and I, I like the fact that he one of the, the rare occasions in which he, he kind of does it scientifically almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's just reasoned it out. Yeah. It's from Blade Two, isn't it? He extended the idea of yes. Blade Two that that the hearts would be, you know, that much faster and that much more dynamic. So yeah. they would burn up. And then there was kind of all those elements about right. shielded in something. Um, and so you'd have to use a, a state to get through to it. He kind of thought it all through. I love that yeah. little sense I of think logic. My favorite parts in the movies we've been watching have been sort of the scientific delves into monster, yeah. <laughs> like monsters and stuff. Um, I just like monsters. I think they're dope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Del Toro would love your answer. <laughs> exactly. The whole of my life has been based on that one principle. Monsters are dope. They are. <laughs> but I, I, I also really appreciate um, Hellboy 2 mm-hmm. and Hellboy 1 because I love fairies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, it comes down to monster design, I guess, which is why I like... Don't be afraid. I like all of the movies. They're all great. Yeah. Except for Crimson Peak. <laughs> that one upsets me. <laughs> Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for, for, for having me on your lovely podcast. I'm going to be listening in now. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. It sounds like you have a lot of fun. The responses aren't usually as concise as yours are. It's usually just a father and daughter rambling about <laughs> rambling about movies. That's what, that's what podcasts are all about. Yeah. Yes. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. So thank you so much. That, thank you so much to Ian for for sitting with us for all of that and uh, for asking us questions. That was mm-hmm. unexpected. I I never expect the, the 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 great camera to swing back on us. I'm much better at talking about myself than I am about asking people questions. Apparently, <laughs> full disclosure: many of the questions that I asked him were come up with by you. We did our we did our groundwork. Uh, mm-hmm. We we came up with questions. So. Cheers to Willow for uh, the insightful questions. Um, Thank you. I have a lot of practice because I'm taking a bunch of literature classes about analyzing literature. <laughs> so if you want to buy uh, Guillermo del Toro, the iconic filmmaker, and his work, it is available for pre-order wherever you pre-order books from, uh, be it online, be it from your local independent bookseller. Uh, I, I, we have our local independent booksellers. They are worth checking out if you if you ask them. I am sure they will secure you a copy. Uh, again, we both loved this book. Book. yeah it's good yeah it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal piece of work it's beautiful to look great on your bookshelf it is gorgeous uh and the writing is top notch uh mm-hmm. not we're surprising. not gonna we're not we're not about to insult the guest after he's left i wouldn't insult but i'm not doing this just because he was no i know <laughs> i i want people to know that we legitimately like this book Highly no the book was good listeners of this podcast will get many 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 wonderful things out of it if you're looking for us we are on twitter at del toro time uh you can find our we have a facebook page where i post the episodes we don't do a whole lot on the facebook page otherwise uh thank you for listening thank you again to ian nathan thank you for all of our all the people who who want us to keep doing this uh we will keep doing this and and we will be back with a movie we'll be back with uh i believe mad max 2 the road warrior uh until then i'm phil and i'm willow and we'll see you when It's Del Toro time.